You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. We've now come to our final episode of our Bison Story series. I'm excited to share with you my wide-ranging conversation with filmmaker Ken Burns about his new documentary, The American Buffalo. I started by asking him why he decided to do a series about the history of the bison and why it seemed like now was the right time for this story. Here's what he had to say. Well, the why now is pretty funky. Uh, We take years and years to make a film. And so there's never really a now when we're making it. There's a now when it's finished and ready to go. And we're always super surprised that so many of the projects that we've attempted over the last nearly 50 years have somehow resonated in that present moment whenever we released it. Mark Twain is supposed to have said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I think there's lots of things about the story of the American buffalo that are pertinent to this moment But we choose a project for an entirely different reason. It's a good story. We've done many, many biographies, and biographies are the constituent building blocks of our larger series. This is a project we've been thinking about for more than 30 years, a biography of an animal which we knew by virtue of what that animal is and its position in our history would inevitably entail a very complex and nuanced and I think for many people, new view of Native Americans and also touch many, many corners of our history in the 19th century and early 20th century that are, you know, hugely relevant, I think, to today and discussions. But we pick it because it's a good story. And the story of the buffalo is about as powerful a story as I know. You know, one of the things that I noticed was that you made a, a, a clearly a conscious choice to not just tell the story of the bison, but also to simultaneously tell the story of 
many numerous Native American tribes who relied on the buffalo. Can you talk a little bit about your decision to narratively tell the story that way? Well, it's you can't not tell the story that way unless you're doing some sort of superficial piece or maybe perhaps just a nature film about it. For more than 600 generations, 10 to 12,000 years, Native people have been intricately intertwined with the history of the buffalo. They've sort of developed alongside one another. Native Americans were sustained by this animal, uh, which they used every single part from the tail to the snout. It worked its way into their folkways their life ways, and even their creation stories in the case of, of many, many tribes. And that animal that they coexisted with probably numbered in the 50 or 60 or maybe even 70 million, we have no way of knowing, uh, by the time Columbus arrived in the New World, not so new for these people, by the time of the beginning of the 19th century in 1800, when Lewis and Clark are about to set off, we think there are 30 to 35 million buffalo. By the 1880s, the buffalo can't be found. There's fewer than a thousand in existence. Most of them are in zoos or in private collections, maybe two dozen, maybe three dozen, we have no way of knowing, are running wild and free in Yellowstone. But that's it. And it's on the brink of extinction. And now it's been brought back. The problem is, is that the market demands that killed the buffalo in such great numbers, it's the largest slaughter of wildlife in the history of the world. And it isn't just the buffalo, the buffalo is the principal victim, but it's also elk and grizzlies and wolves and coyotes. The greatest slaughter of wildlife in the history of the world takes place in the plains. And people begin to realize that not only are they fulfilling a market demand, but by killing the buffalo and possibly letting it go extinct, as Theodore Roosevelt, before he was president, mused, we're also solving our Indian problem. And he uses the word savages to describe them. While it is not official policy of the United States government, it is articulated and spoken out loud that if you kill the buffalo, you're also able to, in some cases, kill the Indian. They starve to death, lacking the sustaining animal. But also, they're easier to move onto reservations. And it's a pretty cynical and pretty sad story to tell. But the film is also very much inspiring in that it tells the story of how an odd assembly of people across the country decided to save the buffalo, some for bad reasons, most for really good ones, and how that happened. The buffalo is no longer extinct. This is a parable of de-extinction. It's a a positive sort of story once you've gotten out of the bottom of the slaughter by the end of the 1880s. You have a really wonderful place in the documentary where we hear how the Crow Chief Plenty Coup says that the end of the buffalo meant the end of history. I wonder if you can kind of delve into what he meant by that and and why that seemed like an important quote to include in the documentary. That's a wonderful, wonderful question. And really at the heart of this, I, I think we have to see that the film is essentially a story about two views of a natural world. One in which a species feels that it is superior and therefore not connected to it. And that slaughter can take place without much conscience. 
On the other hand, there are people who live with the buffalo. It is a story of two views of the natural world. Native peoples were engaged. They saw the buffalo as their kin, as brethren, not separate from it, as opposed to Europeans and Americans who saw themselves as the masters of the world and therefore detached and unrelated to all the lesser species. And that made it possible for manifest destiny, for the sort of ignoring of all of these things. And I think the message of that quote is that when you have severed so completely the connection of a people or a set of people who have a relationship with this animal, and it is a complete severing, they are no more, no one can find them. It, it seems like a cultural death. It is a cultural death. And only now are we beginning with the rematriation of buffalo back into their tribal homelands. Are you beginning to see the, the resilience and the repair necessary to sort of begin to heal those wounds? And they're everywhere. This is a, a huge question. And I think that 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 quote gets at the heart of the tragedy, the idea that this event, this murder of their principal means of subsistence could, for them, just end what they think of as history. You kind of describe the killing of the bison at, at its height when there was just the numbers of bison that were being killed were astronomical. Talk about it in the film as kind of a gold rush of sorts. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and how this was – it turned into kind of a commercial killing where in the media it was sort of being depicted as, you know, that these were hunters and that it was this romantic hunt, but their yeah. strategies were very much – commercial and not necessarily romantic. Yeah, definitely not romantic. They call themselves the hide hunters. It sounded part of the mythology that, of course, has grown up in the West about cowboys and all sorts of different things that form the kind of mythic basis of who we think we are. And at the heart of that, I might add, is the Native American and the buffalo who end up in 1913 on a nickel, romanticizing, fetishizing, perhaps, two entities that we've spent the last hundred years trying to, to destroy, provoking. George Horsecapture Jr., a Native American from Montana, uh, to say, you know, do you have to destroy the things you love? But what happens is that there are market pressures in the 19th century, particularly on buffalo, first the tongues, then the hides to create leather belts to drive the industrial revolution of post-Civil War America. Leather is the fifth largest industry in the United States. Then as they become scarcer and scarcer, it's to get the heads to hang in your trophy room or above your saloon mirror. And then later on, the bones themselves, one historian in the film says, it's like they're cleaning up a crime scene, um, are incredibly lucrative for a nascent chemical industry. That's the pressure without a thought of consequence to that. And I think people went out and just literally, you know, got the best rifles they could and could take down buffalo and knew how to do it. And it was just not the hunt, not the sort of romanticized idea of a Native American with a bow and arrow chasing after a, a buffalo and hunting it down and sort of praying over it. You know, they worship the buffalo because the buffalo sustain them. And 
and in exchange for killing them, they revered them, as we say in the film. It's a quite different thing than the industrial scope of this slaughter. And there's nothing romantic about it. They're also just taking the hides and leaving hundreds of pounds of meat to just rot on the plains. And the fetid stench is, you know, unbearable even for some of these hide hunters and skinners. They say only the wolves and the coyotes and other kind of scavengers, uh, birds, you know, are not bothered by this. And so one can imagine that this American Serengeti, which the Great Plains was, is now kind of more silent and, and absent, a monoculture as, as new plants are replacing the, the flora of the period. It's a pretty interesting story, but I think we have to see this, that this is a kind of industrial-based slaughter and there's nothing romantic or pretty about it. Maybe Buffalo Bill can spin it into, I'm providing meat for the railroad crews, which he did, and he claimed to have killed over 4,000 buffalo, which I believe him. He then later on, you know, realizes that the money he's making with his Wild West show, it needs buffalo and he needs the buffalo to survive. And so he becomes yet another in this motley crew of people that are going to save the buffalo by trying to develop their own herds, however small, in addition to the zoos. And they happen all up and down uh, the plains in the, from the panhandle of Texas to, to the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. As I was watching the film, and just every time that I read this history, I have this sort of knee-jerk reaction, which is just to wonder how it is that people, how Americans could stand that amount of waste and death and how they could justify it in their minds. And, and it felt like you were, you were exploring some ideas there. That is maybe the hardest thing to understand from our viewpoint in history. I, th- I think that's right. As we look back, we sort of shake our heads and said, no, we, we can't possibly have been like that. The continent was so big that we had a kind of myth, as historians discuss in the film, of the inexhaustibility of things, right? We're always going to have enough buffalo. There's always going to be enough trees to chop down. There's always going to be enough hills to scrape away to get the gold or the silver or the uranium or whatever it might be. And it's just not true. And so you begin to see in the second half of the 19th century, a few lone individuals and then a larger chorus beginning to speak out about it, beginning to suggest that we set aside the most beautiful of the land for national parks, a very democratic impulse, the idea that that land could be saved for everybody and for all time, not for the rich, not for nobility, but for everybody for all time, could have only happened in the United States. Wallace Stegner called the national parks America's best idea. And then you have people beginning a nascent conservation movement You know, and they're mostly hunters, right? They're people who want, like Theodore Roosevelt, to go out and shoot a buffalo and they're worried they won't be able to find them. And so conservation is born out of the idea of sustainable recreational shooting. And then it evolves into much larger things. And I think as the whole scope and pattern of this happens, it coincides with essentially a declaration that the frontier, the whole identity of America is growth and the frontier is now closed. There's a famous essay by Frederick Jackson Turner in the 1890s, 93, that says, you know, the frontier is done. Who are we? And without the frontier, we begin to look back on ourselves and wonder 
How did it happen that this inexhaustible supply of everything was now not only clearly exhaustible, but in fact, we are, we've lost some species. The passenger pigeon is gone. The buffalo we can't find anywhere. What are we going to do? Who are we? What kind of people? And yet we do have this legacy. And, and one of the things we usually don't talk about are the principal casualties in addition to the fauna, which is the native people. Lots of tribes who have, since the moment of the settlement there, have, have been brushed aside. People talk about property rights. It's particularly a complicated and vociferous conversation in the West, but it ignores that there are people whose land this was who have not been compensated and who have not in any way been acknowledged to have been the original inhabitants of the place. And in fact, many of the Native Americans, particularly George Horse Capture Jr. from a small tribe in North Central Montana, even calls into question the kind of momentum of our ideas about property. He looks at the camera at one point and just says, my cattle, my land. It runs contrary to the sense of Native American stewardship rather than ownership. And that ownership is, is with the exception of monarchs, a relatively new concept for so-called ordinary people. And a film about the buffalo, paradoxically, can actually raise a whole host of questions that aren't arguing that it, something should be different, but just suggest that there are many ways to see these complex and at times controversial ideas. There was kind of an, a movement to try and rescue this species and to preserve it in some small herds. And then there was even the American Buffalo Society. They made every effort to try and save the buffalo. But then in the film, you really explore the question of when they disbanded. You know, even though there was only a few thousand, they kind of were like, okay, good enough. And I'm just wondering if you might talk a little bit about whether or not that might be an issue that we're facing even now, where we, are, we say, yeah, good enough, where we're not aspiring to bring them back as a wild species that is free roaming. Exactly. That's, that's the heart of the question. And I think we began to see that our film, Two Parts, was in fact just the first two acts of a three-act play. The third act will be written by the rest of us based on the extraordinary and absolutely correct question that you ask. So we did save the buffalo. There are now 350, 375,000 bison. They're not going to go extinct, but it's not 35 million. And most of them are in small settings, zoos, enclosures or corralled in pastures. Some of them are in feedlots waiting to be sustainably slaughtered, which is okay. It's still not the final frontier is can you create habitat? Can you establish an ecosystem in parts of the essentially depopulated plains that would permit the buffalo to roam, the deer and the antelope to play? And that's the question facing us. We've passed the extinction test. And yes, the Buffalo Society could feel it could disband. But have we really 
return this animal to what it wants. There are really good figures. The federal government probably in its wildlife reserves and refuges and in the national parks have about 20,000 plus bison. Native tribes have a little bit more than that. Over 80 tribes, a part of the Intertribal Buffalo Council, have begun the process of accepting and rematriating to other tribes that have been severed from their connection with the buffalo for even longer than the, the Plains Indians. But then there are some NGOs uh, like the World, the Conservation Society and the World Wildlife Fund and American Prairie who are attempting to assemble enough acreage that you'd be able to create a habitat, create an ecosystem that would not just permit the buffalo to flourish and run wild and free, but would restore to the Great Plains to just the multitude of, of flora, where it is now essentially monocultural, and all the other species that would attend that kind of thing. And, and that's a wonderful thing to aspire to. And as Americans are worried about where the next frontier is, one may be in remembering what a glorious Eden, as so many people said about the new world that we had and inherited and in many ways misused. And maybe the repair for all of us, not just the cultural and spiritual repair for Native peoples as they reacquaint themselves with, as they say, their brother, the buffalo, but for the rest of us as we realize that we have these other impulses too, which are to save and preserve. That's the essential nature of being a conservative is to conserve. I wonder if it if I could ask you kind of a little bit of a personal question, just as somebody who's also, you know, done a lot of storytelling around, you know, the story of the of the buffalo. I just know that telling the story is painful. And uh, I just wonder if you might be able to talk a little bit about your own grief in telling this story and how it is that you kind of come to terms with with telling such a painful story. Well, I should start and just say I'm the son of an anthropologist. I had on my wall of my bedroom, as many kids did growing up in the 50s and early 60s, um, you know, a map of the United States. It had the list of all the native tribes, 300 of them on it. And I, of course, saw in books the buffalo and was drawn to it romantically. I saw a buffalo in a zoo. I've had the great privilege as a filmmaker now for more than 30 years of filming buffalo. And there's something incredibly special about these animals. What is amazing, as our second episode's title, Into the Storm, talks about, is their resilience in the great blizzards of the late 19th century where cattle were dying by the tens of thousands the buffalo that were still around survived. And people began to say, what did we do here? We put the wrong animal in here. Um, and I think that you do have to manage grief and loss at this, and you feel it intimately and personally because our film is populated so dramatically by so many different and varied Native voices, from the Kiowa poet and Scott Mamaday to Gerard Baker of the Mandan Hidatsa to member of the Salish and Kootenai and Blackfeet in Montana to Comanche voices, descendants of Quanah Parker. You begin to see and feel and appreciate the tragedy and yet what you never hit that rock bottom because you realize the buffalo is still here 
you know, I live in New Hampshire, and there's a, there was in the late 19th, early 20th century, a, a herd here that was part of why the buffalo got saved. And I discovered just a month or so ago that there's another herd just three towns away from me. And I had one of the most glorious evenings of my life. Summer evening is just as beautiful as it could be in New England with a herd of buffalo that are my neighbors. And there's a sense that in the tragedy, there something can happen. And I would suggest that that's why we save the buffalo. We perceive the sadness and the trauma and did something about it, just as I would suggest that everyone within the sound of my voice, as much as they want things to run smoothly and be well, they are probably themselves all defined as much by loss and sorrow as by anything that's pleasant. And that's the human condition. None of us get out of here alive. And the question comes back to us, who am I? What will I do with my life? What is my purpose here? You know, just some of these amazing photos that you get in film that you get capturing these bison. And it seems like kind of close up and I'm a little worried for the filmmaker because they're just amazing. I wonder if you can tell me a little about just filming them. It's it's tough. And our cinematographer, Buddy Squires, who I've worked with for nearly 50 years, has, you know, gotten up and some of the people who are accompanying us were saying, that's a little bit too close. And I remember Buddy was attending to something technical and suddenly realized that the camera on the tripod was being surrounded by buffalo. And it was like, uh-oh, and there's a somewhere a marvelous, you know, snapshot that somebody took of Buddy sort of moving away. And nobody bumped into it, but it was it was a close call. We do not recommend this at all. And 99% of our filming is done, you know, from the protection of a car or from a place where we know that it would be impossible if the mood changed and a charge happened for us to be damaged. But there's something exhilarating, uh, particularly now when there are so many bison out in fairly large places to be able to see them and imagine what Lewis and Clark saw or imagine what native people saw before Columbus when the buffalo was at the center of every part of their life. What a joyful, amazing thing. There are many Native American quotes, not just about the end of history, but just how lucky Native American people felt in the richness of the Great Plains, teeming with buffalo and elk and other animals and seemingly limitless vistas and the beauty of being at one, sounds cliched, at one with the natural world. Ken's new film, The American Buffalo, is now streaming on PBS. I hope you'll check it out. It's a beautiful and poignant story with incredible archival photography and powerful storytellers. The Modern West has lots more storytelling up our sleeves. We've been hard at work behind the scenes to bring you the very personal story of one family who lost their beloved home in the Marshall Fire outside Boulder, Colorado. You might remember it on the national news. It's a wild grass fire that burned right into suburban neighborhoods, smack dab in the middle of winter. The Boulder community recognized right away that this was the climate crisis bearing down on them turning some of them into climate refugees. Podcaster Ariel Lavery 
brings to life those terrifying hours as her family waits to learn if the fire has destroyed her childhood home. We are watching the story breaking on the Weather Channel now. Watching apartment buildings burning. I think it's behind Costco. I really hope we don't lose the house. The Burn Scar. Next time, from the Modern West. I'm Melody Edwards. Noah Greenspan is our assistant producer. Charles Fournier is our sound designer. Our digital producer is Ryan Kelly. Thanks also for help from McKenna Lipson. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.